Chapter 3, Part 2 of A History of the Philippines. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Trade with the East Articles of Trade. Now we must go back for a moment and pursue an all inquiry further. Whence came all these beautiful and inviting wares that had produced new tastes and passions in Europe? The Italian traders drew them from the Levant, but the Levant had not produced them. Neither pepper, spices, sugarcane, costly gems, nor rich silks were produced on the shores of the Mediterranean. Only the rich tropical countries of the East were capable of growing these rare plants, and up to that time of delivering to the Delver many precious stones, India, the rich Malaysian archipelago, the kingdom of China, these are the lands and islands which from time immemorial have given up their treasures to be forwarded far and wide to amaze the delight the native of colder and less productive lands. Routes of Trade to the Far East Free old sailing and caravan routes connect the Mediterranean with the Far East. These are so old that we cannot guess when men first used them. They were old in the days of Solomon, and indeed very ancient when Alexander the Great conquered the East. One of these routes passed through the Black Sea and around the Caspian Sea, to Turkestan, to those strange and romantic ancient cities, Bukhara and Samarkand. Thence it ran easterly across Asia, entering China from the north. Another crossed Syria and went down through Mesopotamia to the Indian Ocean. A third began in Egypt and went through the Red Sea, passing along the coast of Arabia to India. All of these had been in use for centuries, but by the year 1400, two had been closed. A fresh immigration of Turks, the Ottomans, in the 14th century, came down upon the scourged country of the Euphrates and Syria, and although these Turks also embraced Mohammedanism, their hostility closed the first two routes and commerce over them had never been fully resumed. Venetian Monopoly of Trade Thus an interest centered upon the southern route. By treaty with the Sultan or ruler of Egypt, Venice secured a monopoly of the products which came over this route. Goods from the east now came in fleets up the Red Sea, went through the hands of the Sultan of Egypt, who collected a duty for them, and then were passed on to the ships of the wealthy Venetian merchant princes who carried them throughout Europe. Although the object of intense jealousy, it seemed impossible to wrest this monopoly from Venice. Her fleet was the strongest in the Mediterranean, and her rule extended along the Adriatic to the Grecian islands. All eager minds were bent upon the trade with the East, but no way was known save that which now Venice had gained. extent of geographical knowledge the maps of this period to realize how the problem looked to the sailor of genoa or the merchant of flanders at that time we must understand how scanty and erroneous was the geographical knowledge of even the fifteenth century it was believed that jerusalem was the center of the world a belief founded upon a biblical passage the maps of these and earlier dates represent the earth in this way in the center palestine and beneath it the Mediterranean Sea, the only body of water which was well known, 
On the left side is Europe, on the right Africa, and at the top Asia, the last two continents very indefinitely mapped. Around the hall was supposed to flow an ocean, beyond the first few miles of which it was perilous to proceed lest the ship be carried over the edge of the earth or encounter other perils. Ideas about the earth The Greek philosophers before the time of Christ had discovered that the world is a globe or ball and had even computed rudely its circumference. But in the Middle Ages this knowledge had been disputed and contradicted by a geographer named Cosmas, who held that the world was a vast plain twice as long as it was broad and surrounded by an ocean. This belief was generally adopted by churchmen who were the only scholars of the Middle Ages and came to be the universal belief of Christian Europe. The Renaissance survived the knowledge of the written writings of the old Greek geographers who had demonstrated the Earth's shape to be round and had roughly calculated its size. But these writings did not have sufficient circulation in Europe to gain much acceptance among the Christian gomographers. The Arabs, however, after conquering Egypt, Syria, and northern Africa, translated into their own tongue the wisdom of the Geeks, Greeks and became the best informed and most scientific geographers of the Middle Age, so that intercourse with the Arabs, which began with the Crusades, helped to acquaint Europe somewhat with India and China. The Far East The Tartar Mongols Then, in the 13th century, all northern Asia and China fell under the power of the Tartar Mongols. Russia was overrun by them, and Western Europe threatened. At the Danube, however, this tide of Asiatic conquests stopped, and then followed the long period when Europe came into diplomatic and commercial relations with these Mongols and through, through them learned something of China. Marco Polo visits the Great Khan. Several Europeans visited the court of the Great Khan, or Mongol king, and one of them, Marco Polo, we must speak in particular. He was a Venetian, and when a young man started in 1271 with his father and uncle on a visit to the Great Khan. They passed from Italy to Syria, across to Baghdad, and down to Ormuz, whence they journeyed northward through Upper Persia and thence across the Pamirs along the caravan route to Kalpinfu, where the Khan had his court. Here, in the service of this prince, Marco Polo spent over 17 years. So valuable indeed were his services that the Khan would not permit him to return. Year after year he remained in the east. He traversed most of China and was for a time Tao Tai, or magistrate, of the city of Jiangchang near the Jiangxia River. He saw the amazing wonders of the East. He heard of Sipangu or Japan. He probably heard of the Philippines. Finally, the opportunity came for all three Venetians to return. The great Khan had relative who was a ruler of Persia, and ambassadors came from this ruler to secure a Mongol princess for him to marry. The dangers and hardships of the travel overland were considered too difficult for the delicate princess, and it was decided to send her by water. Marco Polo and his father and uncle were commissioned to accompany the expedition to Persia. History of Marco Polo's Travels They sailed from the port of Chinchou, probably near Amoy, Amoy in the year 1292. Note 1. See Jules Marco Polo, 
for a discussion of this point and for the entire history of this great explorer as well as a translation of his narrative the book of sir marco polo has been most critically edited with introduction and voluminous notes by this english scholar sir henry jewell in this edition the accounts of marco polo covering so many countries and peoples of the far east can be studied end of note one they escorted the coasts of cambodia and siam and reached the eastern coast of sumatra where they waited five months for the changing of the monsoon of the malay people of sumatra as well as of these islands their animals and productions marco polo has left us most interesting and quite accurate accounts the malays from sumatra were beginning to be converted to mohammedanism for marco polo says that many of them were saracens he gained a good knowledge of the rich and mysterious indian isles where the spices and flavorings grew it was two years before the party having crossed the indian ocean reached persia and the court of the pension king when they arrived they found that while they were making this long voyage the persian king had died but they married the mongol princess to his son the young prince who had succeeded him and that did just as well from persia the venetians crossed to the black sea sailed for italy and at last reached home after an absence of twenty-four years more market Polo's adventures did not end with his return to venice in a fierce sea fight between the venetians and genoese he was made a prisoner and confined in genoa here a fellow-captive wrote down from marco's own words the story of his eastern adventures and this book we have today it is a record of adventure travel and description so wonderful that for years it was doubted and its accuracy disbelieved but since in our own time men have been able to traverse again the routes over which marco polo passed fact after fact has been established quite as he truthfully stated them centuries ago to have been the first european to make this mighty circle of travel is certainly a strong title to enduring fame countries of the far east india let us now briefly look at the countries of the far east with which the year fourteen hundred had come to exercise over the mind of the european so irresistible a fascination first of all india as we have seen had for centuries been the principal source of the western commerce but long before the date we are considering the scepter of india had fallen from the hand of the hindu from the seventh century india was a prey to mohammedan conquerors who entered from the northwest into the valley of the indus at first these were saracens or arabs later were the same mongol converts to mohammedanism whose attacks upon europe we have already noticed in thirteen ninety eight came the furious and bloody warrior the greatest of all mongols timur or tamerlane he founded with capital at delhi the empire of the great mogul whose rule over india was only broken by the white man eastward across the ganges and in the deccan or southern part of india were states ruled over by the indian princes china we have seen now at the time of marco polo china also was ruled by the tartar mongols the chinese have ever been subject to attack from the wandering horse riding tribes of siberia two hundred years before christ one of the chinese kings built the great wall 
that stretches across the northern frontier for 1,300 miles for a defense against northern foes. Through much of their history, the Chinese have been ruled by aliens as they are today. About 1368, however, the Chinese overthrew the Mongol rulers and established the Ming Dynasty, the last Chinese house of emperors who ruled China until 1644, when the Manchus, the present rulers, conquered the country. China was great and prosperous under the Mings. Commerce flourished, and the fleets of Chinese junks sailed to India, the Malay Islands, and to the Philippines for trade. The Grand Canal, which connects Peking with the Yangtze River Basin and Hanshua, was completed. It was an age of fine productions of literature. The Chinese seem to have been much less exclusive then than they are at the present time much less a peculiar isolated people than now. They did not then shave their heads nor wear a queue. These customs, as well as that hostility to foreign intercourse which they have today, were forced upon China by the Manchus. China appeared at that time ready to assume a position of enormous influence among the peoples of the earth, a position for which she was well fitted by the great industry of her classes and the high intellectual power of her learned men. Japan. Compared with China or India or even some minor states, the development of Japan at this time was very backward. Her people were divided and there was constant civil war. The Japanese borrowed their civilization from the Chinese. From them they learned writing and literature and the Buddhist religion which was introduced about 550 AD. But in temperament, they are a very different people, being spirited, warlike, and until recent years, have despised trading and commerce. Since the beginning of her history, Japan has been monarchical. The ruler, the Mikado, is believed to be of heavenly descent. But in the centuries we are discussing, the government was controlled by powerful nobles known as the shoguns, who kept the emperors in retirement in the palaces of Kyoto and themselves directed the state. The greatest of these shoguns was Ijeyasu, who ruled Japan about 1600, soon after Manila was founded. They developed in Japan a series of feudalism, the great lords, or daimyos, owning allegiance to the shoguns, and about the daimyos, as feudal retainers, bodies of samurai, who formed a partly noble class of their own. The samurai carried arms, fought at their lords' command, were students and literati, and among them developed that proud, loyal, and elevated color morality known as Bushido, which has done so much for the Japanese people. It is this samurai class who in modern times have effected the immense revolution in the condition and power of Japan. The Malay Archipelago if now we look at the Malay Islands, we find, as we have already seen, that changes have been effected there. Hinduism had first elevated and civilized at least a portion of the race, and Mohammedanism and the daring seamanship of the Malay had united these islands under a common language and religion. There was, however, no political union. The Malay Peninsula was divided. Jama, Java formed a central Malay power, eastward among the beautiful Celebs and Moluccas, the true Spice Islands were a multitude of small native rulers, Rajas or Dados, 
who surrounded themselves with retainers, kept rude courts, and gathered wealthy tributes of cinnamon, nutmegs, and cloves. The sultans of Ternate, Tidor, and Amboina were especially powerful, and the islands they ruled the most rich and productive. Between all these islands there was a busy commerce. The Malay is an intrepid sailor and an eager trader. Fleets of prose, laden with goods, passed with the changing monsoons from part to part, risking the perils of piracy which have always troubled this archipelago. Borneo, while the largest of all these islands, was the least developed and down to the present day has been hardly explored. The Philippines were also outside of most of these busy intercourse and had at that date few products to offer for trade. Their main connection with the rest of the Malay race was through the Mohammedan Malays of Jolo and Borneo. The fame of the Spice Islands had long filled Europe, but the existence of the Philippines was unknown. Summary We have now reviewed the condition of Europe and of farther Asia as they were before the period of modern discovery and colonization opened. The East had reached a condition of quiet stability. Mohammedanism, though still, though still spreading, did not promise to effect great social changes. The institutions of the East had become fixed in custom, and her peoples neither made changes nor desired them. On the other hand, Western Europe had become aroused to an excess of ambition. New ideas, new discoveries, and inventions were moving the nations to activity and change. That era of modern discovery and progress of which we cannot yet perceive the end, had begun. End of chapter 3, part 2